think we have packed the place. Uh, I think we've got some folks downstairs in our overflow area, and uh, must be the, the good weather, right? Um, getting you coming out for, for church. So uh, we are today in Acts chapter 20, and uh, we are moving our way through, and I can't believe that we started this uh, journey in Acts back in, I think, February. We took a little bit of a break uh, as we looked at First Peter, and we've done a couple of other things along the way, um, but we're still rushed at the end. Uh, I'm trying to... Uh, get us through by Thanksgiving. And uh, so if you're in 20 today and there's 28 chapters, you can do the math there for what we have to do uh, to get through Acts by Thanksgiving. And uh, really, Acts chapter 20 is um, a, a chapter that I could take two, maybe three weeks on, you know, as a series. I, I think I took three weeks on Acts chapter 2. Um, but uh, we're going to do it in one week. So that means there's no maps and slides, no geography quiz at the end of the sermon this week, which I know will disappoint those of you who've been getting top grades on that. Uh, some of you are also relieved that you don't have to memorize all these strange names. But I, I do want you to, to understand what is happening here in Acts. Last week we talked about uh, Paul and how he had spent um, at least two years. This chapter tells us that he spent three years in Ephesus. And we, we saw how the gospel was spreading, and how spreading through the, not just the in Ephesus, but spreading out uh, throughout the Roman province of Asia. And this is, you'll, you may recall, on the western edge of Turkey. Um, and, and so that's where it's located. But... Then at the end of his stay, there's a riot, and we kind of put the pieces together to suggest that he was quite possibly imprisoned after the riot, and maybe even at one point uh, forced to fight against wild animals for the entertainment of the crowds as part of that imprisonment. And then he leaves. Okay? So it was a time of of triumph followed by a time of trial. And he, he, he packs his bags, heads out of Ephesus, and he goes over to Macedonia. Macedonia, if you, again, it's difficult to picture, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't have any slides today, which is good for the folks downstairs, but uh, it might be helpful for us upstairs. But it, it's, um, Macedonia is in the northern part of Greece. And he has already been there on a previous mission trip, and, and so he, he knows the church is there in Macedonia, and that's where he begins. And then he, he, the reason, what he really wants to do is go back to Corinth. We've seen him having this correspondence with the church in Corinth. And he's concerned about what's going on. He's concerned about the people there. But he's also not sure about the reception that he's going to receive when he gets there. Because they've been upset with him, with some of the things that he's had to tell them. And he's like, oh, I don't even know if I'm going to be welcome there. You know, if I go all the way down there, you know, and, and think how 1 Corinthians begins. You know, some people say they're of Apollos. Some people say they're of Peter. Some people say they're of Paul. And some people say they're of Jesus. Um, and so he, or he says, I'm of, of Jesus. You know, so 
it's a bit of a bit of a mess there. And he's like, I don't know if people want to hear from me. So while he's in Macedonia, he sends people down south to Corinth, which is in Greece proper. And uh, he gets word back that he's welcome. He also sends the book of second, second writes the book of Second Corinthians while he's in Macedonia. And, and he sends word that he's welcome. So he travels down south. He doesn't go to Athens, so far as we know, but he does go to Corinth, spends three months in Corinth. He's intending to go from Corinth directly back to his home church in Syria, uh, the, the church of Antioch, in, in Antioch, in Syria. But he, he runs into opposition, and Luke doesn't really, just like Luke didn't give us details about his imprisonment there in Ephesus, um, he also doesn't really give us details about this opposition that he's encountering. But it must be pretty severe, because he says, I'm not going to get on a boat and sail to Antioch, or sail to Syria, because of the opposition. He says, instead, I'm going to walk back up to Macedonia. And so he goes back to Macedonia, stays there, and he has the Passover there in Philippi. And then he travels, leaves Philippi, and he sets his face towards Jerusalem. At this point, Luke is doing something where he's uh, making comparisons to Jesus, okay? where Jesus also, at a point in his ministry, in Luke's Gospel, we're told he set his face towards Jerusalem. Knowing that he was going to die in Jerusalem, he still set his face towards Jerusalem. And so Paul, at the Passover, he, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he heads off in that direction. He crosses back over to Turkey, comes down the coast, uh, but goes, sails past Ephesus. It says he didn't go to Ephesus because he was in a hurry. He wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. That gives him 50 days to get from Philippi to Jerusalem. Um, so he, he doesn't stop at Ephesus. That may well be true because if he landed there, he probably would have stayed a couple of weeks. Right? It's this church that he just spent three years with. It may also be true that Paul wouldn't have been particularly welcome in Ephesus. Since last time he was there, he was imprisoned, there was a riot, and he wrestled wild animals at some point. So he sails past Ephesus, and he stops at Miletus, a small town, certainly nothing very significant. But he stops there, and he sends for the elders at Ephesus. And, and the elders from the church in Ephesus... Uh, come down and they, they visit with him. Okay? I've skipped over the bit there about Eutychus um, falling out of the window, and I know that's you know, another passage there, and, and uh, we, we often use that passage when we talk about the Lord's Supper because they break bread on the first day of the week. But we're coming down to where he is meeting with the Ephesian elders. It gives us a little bit of insight into the church and the elders. It seems... I, I'm just kind of drawing conclusions here, but in all, it's a, probably a day or two's walk to get down from Ephesus to Miletus and another day or two back. It's quite likely that the elders or leaders in the church there are uh, some of the more well-to-do members that are able to take the best part of a week off to come and meet Paul. If you're a slave or working for someone, uh, you don't usually get that option of just saying, okay, boss, I'll be back uh, next week. Uh, so it, it seems this sort of 
uh, I don't know what's the right word here, gentrification of church leadership, uh, perhaps kind of help happened early on. Um, and, and Paul doesn't really get into that, but I think it's just an interesting thing there uh, to, to note and remind us of the importance of um, welcoming everybody, giving everybody an opportunity who studies the scriptures, uh, to, to who has a relationship with God, to be engaged in the leadership of the congregation. So when Paul arrives, here's where I want to, I want to do. What we have is a Luke's summary of Paul's conversation with these elders. Right? Because if I was just to read this text, it would take me about two, maybe three minutes. They didn't walk two days for Paul to talk to them for two or three minutes. Right? So we have the Reader's Digest extreme version of Paul's conversation with the Ephesian elders. I think that's an important thing for us to see. So what is it that Luke then, or the Holy Spirit through Luke, uh, chooses to emphasize out of this conversation with the church leaders? One of the things that Paul is going to say is that I'm not going to see you again. And so this is his last words to this group of people, these leaders of the church that he has worked at for three years. We give a lot of importance to last words, don't we? Um, the last words of Jesus on the cross. Uh, the last words of a parent or a loved one. That's one of the questions that I so often ask when I talk with someone who's lost a loved one. When did you last see them? What was your last conversation with them? And, and sometimes it's meaningful. And sometimes it's regrets of things that weren't said. And, and so Paul here is able to, to plan and make sure that he says something that's meaningful to these church leaders. And so what is it that he talks about? One of the things that he talks about um, at, at length is uh, watching out for wolves, watching out for false teachings uh, in, the, in the church. And that certainly uh, is a significant part of his advice to the, the elders. Uh, but I want to focus on two words. Two words. And so this is the um, summary of the summary, if you will. <laughs> My summary is only two words long. But I'm going to spend a lot more than two words uh, talking about these two words. So don't get too excited. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Think about that for that context. Everything that we read last week about um, the church and his time in Ephesians. What do you think of an evangelist, of somebody that comes and works with the church and he says, yeah, my, my time with you was characterized by tears. Do you picture that Paul in that way? Tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. 
I have declared to both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's ministry consists of teaching in settings like this, but it's also going house to house, answering questions, spending time with people, getting to know them. And, uh, And so I think we... You know, we see a good model there, the importance of relationships, not just amongst the leaders of the church, but amongst the members of the church. And uh, I think in some ways, uh, our growth group ministry uh, is an attempt to, to replicate that kind of thing. The word I want to focus on, though, is what he says that he declared to Jews and Greeks. This is the essence of his preaching, he says that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So the Gentiles, the Greeks, need to repent and the Jews need to repent. Now the Gentiles, we can be quite, you know, understand that, right? We know what the Greeks are like. We know that they worship idols. They worship pagan gods. We know some of the things that are involved in those, uh, in that worship. We know the um, that, that while each sect or, or each cult um, of, of different gods have their own set of ethics, their own set of practices, their own standards, we also know that people serve them because out of selfish motives to, to make, bring prosperity upon themselves, maybe peace upon the city. But um, it was not out of a sense of right and wrong that they served those particular gods, but just out of this is what will be be best for us. But their ethics were very different from the Jewish and Christian ethics of, uh, of Yahweh. And so we recognize that they need to repent. That seems obvious. The Jews, on the other hand, what do they need to repent? Well, remember that the word repent means to turn, to turn around. Okay, so, so if you're a Gentile, you need to turn around from idols, you need to turn around from practicing magic, from promoting self, and you need to have faith in the Lord Jesus. But if you're a Jew, you're a godly person. You are morally upright. Think of the rich young ruler. Devout. Living a life where he says, I fulfilled the law. And Paul's message to people like him is that he needs to repent. And so sometimes our definition of repent is too limited in terms of because we restrict it to sin. But Paul is saying you need to turn from your faith in your traditions, your faith in the law, and you need to turn to being open-minded to accepting that God is working through Jesus Christ. And that scripture can be read in a different way and that the Messiah is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He says, you need to turn and adapt a new way of thinking. You need to open your eyes, your ears, your hearts and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And so there are two types of repentance that I think are relevant for us today. The first one is that our behavior can be blatantly ungodly at times. Right? Anyone? 
No, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, our behavior can be blatantly ungodly. We can get angry and, and sin right, in our anger. We can be cruel. We can be unforgiving. We can say things that perhaps aren't completely true so that we can get what we want. Um, there are lots of different things that we can do. I'm not going to go through that list. Right? But there are things, ways that we don't represent God well. And, and, and sometimes if our behavior doesn't demonstrate a difference with the world, then maybe there isn't a difference with the world. And so I want to think of this ungodly behavior that is part of our lives in many instances uh, still as, as our Gentile behavior that we need to turn from. But on the other, on the other hand, there's also this, the Jewish, but I'm, I'm going to call it our religious behavior that we need to repent of. So what might that look like for us? I think one way it looks like is that our attitude can become one of self-confident smugness. Anyone want to go to the self-confident smug church? And and so we we recognize the problem with that. But I hope we also recognize the temptation that we have with that. So I have found that the more that I study and teach the more confident I become in a way of understanding Scripture. When, when I started out, it was about, it was over 20 years ago that I first came uh, to, to prepare for ministry to the U.S. And there were, you know, if there were, there were more verses, let's put it this way, there were more parts of Scripture that I couldn't explain then than there are now. Okay? Because after 20 years of, you know, spending the bulk of that time hanging out with you guys, answering your questions, telling you stuff that you're not interested in, I've come to know more and I believe to understand more. And that's natural sort of growth and progression that we, we expect. So what happens when we start to know more? Yeah? It's real easy. It's not a big step to saying I knowing more to I knowing all. Right? I know the answer to that. You can't stump me. And so one of the things that that I I try and do is to uh, become increasingly aware at the same time as I read widely of other perspectives. You see, God is bigger than I am. And so I think I may know this part of God quite well. But God's like this. And so there are other perspectives and other people and and, uh, other experiences that, that have insight into God. And sometimes their insight may demonstrate that something I believe or an understanding that I have needs to be adjusted, that it's wrong or it needs, it's incomplete. And, and so uh, we need an attitude of humility that accompanies our knowledge. And so I find myself increasingly in this strange place of having stronger convictions in certain areas. Like it's like I just can't see you changing my mind about that, whoever you are. Okay? But also a greater awareness that some of my convictions may be misplaced. And so I live in this strange place of tension. 
but I hope that it steers me towards humility. Do you notice the way that even Paul described his ministry there in Ephesus? In verse 18, he says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. You know, if anyone's going to come in and know it all, it's Paul. He wrote half the New Testament. He'd had conversations with Jesus. He says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. I mean, it's always questionable when somebody says that they served with humility. Um, But it was written by Luke. So I guess that makes it all right. But he served with humility. That was his goal when he came in, was to adopt that attitude. So we might think of that smugness as our religious behavior that maybe at times we need to repent of. I'll give you an example uh, that's not just about me. When I read back through old writings from different Church of Christ authors, uh, the things we do today that we might think are, have always been done this way, it isn't necessarily so. You see, I think that's what the Jews, when they encountered Paul, this is the attitude that many of them would have had. They would have said, Paul, we have always come to the synagogue. We have always studied Isaiah. We've always studied Jeremiah. We know how to interpret it. And you are coming along, and you're telling us there's a different interpretation. You're telling us that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. We don't even know this Jesus guy. He was down in Jerusalem. If he exists at all. How do we know you're not just making it up? And, and so they're, they're like, this is our tradition. This is our teaching. This is part of God gave us the Ten Commandments of the Lord at Sinai. What is it that you're telling us, Paul? And so we can get into this mindset that the way we do things has always been done that way too. But let me give you some examples. For instance, Sunday school, Bible class, Sunday morning, was introduced at some point. There was a point in time where churches just met for worship without a Bible class on Sunday morning. And those churches were healthy and survived, right? Yeah, how would you feel if we, I know we're not even doing Bible class now, but if we just said, nope, we're never doing it again. Would you feel like you'd lost something? That's not right. We've always had Bible class. Uh, And I'm not suggesting we should, but I'm just giving some examples. Uh, How about the invitation at the end of a sermon? I've, I've heard many sermons described as a good gospel sermon. And a gospel sermon means you can talk about anything for 25 minutes as long as the last five have an invitation. And, and that's been a staple. But it was introduced at some point. You go back far enough, you won't hear an invitation in a sermon. I've read different accounts of old churches of Christ having women who were deacons or deaconesses and Bible class teachers in the 1800s, 1700s, early 1800s. Now, I mean, that's certainly not the practice now, but there were significant, prominent figures in the early days of the movement that were supportive of that. And it was practice. How about moving from one cup to separate cups during communion? You think there were people that are saying, no, we've always done... I mean, there are churches today that are still one cup churches, right? Because they're convinced that that's the way to do it. That's the way we've always done it. That's the way God gave it to us. But at some point we said, no, we're going to go to individual cups. And then, obviously, now we've had to make this adjustment of saying, we're going to go to... Uh, you know, unleavened styrofoam on top of a little peeled the plastic off grape juice 
self-service cups. Right? And, and, and so things haven't always been the way that they are, and things continue to change. The question is that Paul says to these Jews that have this mindset, he says, you need to repent. You need to turn from thinking the way that we've always done it is the right way. And you need to turn to Jesus. And that's the the focus of um, following God. Our religious behavior, I want to suggest, actually becomes more problematic the more we point out the Gentile behavior in others. You see, I think when churches focus on that Gentile behavior, on that immoral stuff, the the headline stuff, the, the violence, the anger, the immorality, the whatever it might be that's, that's happening out there as we look into the world, and, and churches are saying, look at that ungodliness out there. Look at that Gentile behavior. The people need to repent for their sins and they need to come to, to God, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the truth. But the more that the church talks about that, the greater the likelihood that the church needs to repent of its own religious behavior, of that self-righteous smugness. And so it's an interesting relationship between those two ideas. It's a delicate balance, and Paul calls both Jews and Greeks to turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. With all this talk of repentance, it would be easy to think that Paul's message is that people need to straighten up and fly right. That's your responsibility. You're doing something wrong. You need to fix it. You need to do better. You need to stop it. You need to change. You need to eradicate that from your life. You need to introduce this to your life. You need to do better. Repent and get it right. And I think sometimes... Maybe we give that impression as well. And that's why I want to draw attention to Paul's last word to the elders. In verse 32, he kind of gives them a a benediction, a a, a blessing as they depart. He says, now I commit to you, I commit you to God into the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What's his blessing on these elders? He says, I want to commit you to God. Anyone want to be committed to God? Like, yes, that's a good thing, right? Okay, and to the word of his grace. You're going, what's that? What's that? Wasn't the Bible. Because it wasn't written yet. What is the word his grace. Grace is our word that we want to focus on here at the end. First word is repentance. The last word is grace. You see, grace builds up. I love this description. He says, the word of grace that builds up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, grace builds up because it doesn't put down. That religious behavior that we referenced before. You see, grace is going to be the antidote 
to both of those things that need repenting of. Because grace says, we're not going to put down those people that are out there doing their own thing, living life their own way, living for the moment, not for the future, living as though there is no God. We're not going to put them down. We're going to show them grace. And grace builds up. You see, grace accepts people where they are and says, you know, God loves you where you are. Now let me show you something better. Let me show you something better. The religious behavior mentioned earlier makes it so easy to divorce repentance from grace. That you need to repent right now, you need to change right now. If you don't, there's terrible consequences. There are terrible consequences to sin. Absolutely. But grace says, God needs to work in your life. You need to make this change. It's going to be better for you, but I can't make you do it. I can't make you do it. You see, smug faith points fingers at others and condemns others. The gospel of grace seeks to help others to a better place. I think that's a big difference. When Paul goes and calls people to repentance, he, doesn't, he does say, your idols are false. But he's not saying, aha, I win. I win. My God's better than yours. This isn't the showdown at the top of Mount Sinai between uh, Mount Carmel, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal with people who should have known better. You know, where, where Elijah says, I win. Fire from heaven consumes those false prophets. This, this isn't about winning. This is about saying to them, you are worshipping gods that you... You know they're incomplete. Let me show you a God who's complete. And his attitude is one of of bringing them, of, of, of giving them access to something they've not had access to before. It's filled with grace. And finally, grace gives us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That word inheritance is a family term. Right? It says that God welcomes us into his family. That's how we gain access to that inheritance. And he says, we become amongst all those who are sanctified, those who are made holy, those who are made God's people. Think about made God's people. Again, it's not those who won. Right? It's not those who won and got the prize. Although Paul does at times talk in that metaphor. But he says those who've been made, it's something that God has done in people's lives. That God has sanctified them. Through the blood of Jesus, they are made to be children of God. Because we can't save ourselves. And, and if, the, if, if the grace towards those who are living Gentile lives is to, to say, come to a better place, grace is also relevant to those who are living religious lives. Because it reminds us that we did not save ourselves. That we received something that we didn't deserve. That we received a gift that that the solid ground that we stand on in the kingdom of God is only where we stand because of the grace of God. So the grace of God, the word of grace, builds up those who are outside and draws them to a better place. And those of us in the better place recognize that we're here. Because somebody else 
helped us be here. It's hard to be smug and self-righteous when we're spending all our time being thankful for the grace that we have received. And so I would say to the elders, to the deacons, to the ministry leaders here at Lawson Road, take a moment this week and think about how the word of grace impacts your ministry. This is the word that is spoken to the elders, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. It wasn't spoken to the whole congregation. And so Paul's saying, I want you leaders to know this. I'm committing you to God and to the word of grace. And how does that impact your life and your ministry in that leadership role that you have in this congregation? But I think it does relate to all of us because this was something the leaders would go back to Ephesus and pass on to their congregation. And remembering where we have come from helps us to stay humbly oriented on the gospel of grace, of God in Jesus Christ. I missed over this. this. There's one other place that uh, grace is mentioned in, this, in Paul's talk, and that is in verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Okay, let's try that again. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's Amen. That's what the gospel is. Gospel, good news, right? The good news of God's grace. Because of that, we're invited to repent. I want to invite you today, if there's something in your life that you need to repent, perhaps you've never repented. You've never said to God, I need to make a change. I need to come to you. I need to be a new person. I need you in my life. I need forgiveness for my sins. Perhaps you're intimidated by God. I want you to know that God is inviting you, not forcing you. And God is offering you grace, not judgment. I encourage you to have a conversation with someone today. Don't don't put it off. Because it is something that is urgent. You can live your life either without or out of harmony with God or in harmony with God. And I'm here to tell you that life is better when it's lived in harmony with God. And then for those of us that have at different points in our life repented and turned, then this is an invitation for you to examine your life. Maybe right now, but maybe in the coming week or month, and say, how has God's grace infused my life? And where are the areas of resistance where I'm clinging to something other than the gospel of grace? Perhaps I'm placing my faith in something else. Perhaps I'm, I'm just hard and stubborn and I don't want to be soft and gracious towards others. There's so many different ways that we struggle with it. But I invite you to consider that in the days ahead. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. After that, We're going to uh, play a song. It's a new song. 
It's called overflowing with thankfulness. And it's, a, it's not a stand up and stomp your feet kind of song, but I love the, the words overflowing with thankfulness. Because, for, I don't want to give the comedian talk, but the, the cup that we take is a cup of thanksgiving, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I think as we, we spend time in Acts 20 thinking about the grace of God, and the repentance and the, the adoption into his family to receive his inheritance. God isn't twisting anyone's arm that they should respond. Rather, he says, I want you to respond out of gratitude, out of thankfulness. And so we come to worship, not because we're compelled, but I hope I hope, and we're all at different points with different struggles, but I hope, if not today, that someday soon, that we come overflowing with thankfulness for the gospel of grace that we experience in our lives each day.